Thanks so much for joining us, Betsy. First, I wanted to ask you about the Coronavirus Financial Advisory Committee. They had a meeting earlier this week and made two big decisions. First was uh, related to the special session that we saw about a month ago. That's right. This was a request from the Boise Police Department for about $69,000 to cover their costs for providing security at the special session. And this was on top of a previously approved request from the Idaho State Police for $78,600. In the case of the Boise Police Department, this was for 27 officers on each of two days and seven officers on a third day for both regular and overtime hours. And as everyone will remember, the three-day special session was marked by some pretty unruly protests, multiple arrests, including of Ammon Bundy, who was arrested twice and barred from the Capitol for a year, and the breaking of a glass door leading into the House Gallery. Um, basically, a whole lot of police presence ended up being required for this special session. And CFAC, which is the, the, the um, the short nickname for our Coronavirus Financial Advisory Committee voted unanimously to cover those bills. But one of the members, Representative Melissa Wintrow, who did vote in favor of this funding said it troubled her to use the CARES Act funds for this because she thought they definitely needed to be paid and she was glad that they were there, but that it shouldn't have been necessary. And she basically faulted um, the majority party, the Republicans, for holding the special session in the first place and contended it wasn't worth it with the upheaval that it caused and, and what it produced. Yeah, I'm also curious about something else that came up during that meeting, and it was an approval of a proposal that Governor Little put forth last week having to do with education and parents who are financially affected by online and distance learning. This was actually a really big deal. So this was $150 million for Idaho schools. And $99 million of that was to fully restore the 5% holdback, the budget cut that the governor had imposed proactively back at the start of the fiscal year on July 1st, anticipating that state revenues were gonna fall way short because of what's happened to the economy because of the pandemic. And what they had decided to do was to tap into their CARES Act funds. This is Idaho's $1.25 billion share of federal coronavirus relief aid and fully make that up, the whole 99 million. And then the other 50 million is going to go directly to Idaho families who have been hurt by the need, by the, the closure of schools in Idaho, um, families with school-age kids who've had their schools closed and the families have had to either have a parent leave the workforce or cut back their hours or invest in computers and, um, digital connections and so forth in order to just get the basic education for the kids that the Idaho Constitution charges the state with providing. And so there are still details in the works about how this money will be distributed. The State Board of Education is going to oversee it. Um, and it's a maximum of, I believe it's $3,500 per family. Uh, and it will be income-based, at least for starters. There are going to be four waves of applications starting in early October, with the lowest income families eligible to apply first, then the next level of income, and then the next after it, to where eventually it will be open to all families of school-age children in Idaho um, for an opportunity re to be reimbursed for those costs that they put in. And this is something that Governor Little acknowledged won't there isn't enough money for every single family or every single student. Um, but those are the details we have now that. Right. And in it's fact, gonna... the governor has 
estimated that it could help 30,000 school kids. We have 310,000 school kids in Idaho. So it's really just a piece, but the State Board of Education has described it as a really good start on getting to this problem that we are really seriously experiencing for families across Idaho trying to access education for their kids. Now, education is something that didn't come up in the special session, even though a number of lawmakers wanted it addressed. Um, the lieutenant governor missed the vote. She sits on CFAC and she faced some criticism for missing that vote on the education funding. She certainly did for a number of reasons. Now, Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan has passed, cast the only no vote in CFAC on a number of occasions on some rather popular programs otherwise. And on the 150 million for education, she sent an email to CFAC, to all the members, something like 17 minutes before the meeting started saying, hold off, don't vote on this. We need to look into it more. It needs more study. Can we even do this? And said that she wasn't going to be able to attend the meeting. Two hours before the meeting started, she tweeted a picture of herself driving a convertible saying she was off to the Trump fundraiser in Stanley with uh, Donald Trump Jr which presumably is why she was unable to attend the meeting. Um, and so her request for CFAC was just delay this, put it off. The discussion in the CFAC meeting, including from other legislators who participated and from the State Board of Education officials, was that we need to get this money out as soon as possible. And this needs to be approved and it needs to get in the works. And nobody on CFAC proposed delaying this. In fact, the vote was unanimous to approve it. So. The lieutenant governor's absence from that meeting and the circumstances of that caused quite a stir. Um, and there were news reports pretty much from every mainstream news outlet in our state. Plus, it was all over social media. It was kind of the talk of the day, what she had done. And, and perhaps because education funding and $150 million for education in Idaho, that is the basic function of state government, according to our Constitution. That's the main thing that they're supposed to accomplish. And the Lieutenant Governor's reaction to the attention that she received was to lash out on social media and fault the news media and call it fake news um, because she said, oh, nobody asked where I was. Actually, that picture was the day before or something like that. She was photographed prominently at the fundraiser with Donald Trump Jr., which occurred around the same time as this meeting, um, the same day. And uh, one reporter, Clark Corbin from Idaho Education News, tweeted that he actually put in a formal request to her chief of staff asking when she traveled to the fundraiser, why she didn't appear at, why she didn't participate in the meeting, which by the way was all remote. It was a telephone conference and received a, a response back saying she missed it for personal reasons, no further comment. Uh, and I think a number of people pointed out that it's normal for people to participate remotely. And so even if she was on the road, presumably she could have called in, she could have participated via Zoom. Um, but as you said, there was no comment. Do you know, she brought up in her response that there were some lingering questions that she had as to whether it was even legal to use the Federal CARES Act money in the way that the little administration had proposed. Was this something that came up in the CFAC meeting? It was, and that was something she mentioned in her email, and it was something that CFAC members made a point of asking about and discussing at length. And the U.S. Treasury has issued some new guidance within the last two weeks saying that states can now use a portion of their share of CARES Act money for schools and up to $500 per public school student will be presumed 
to be COVID related. In this case, this amounts to $310 per Idaho public school student. So we are well below the cap for which the um, CARES Act requirements and the Treasury guidance says we won't even need to submit any documentation at all. Nevertheless, CFAC was told that the state does plan to document this, including the amount that goes to every school and what it's used for, simply because they want to do so in the name of transparency. You covered another high profile story this week about Kanye West, an independent pre uh, presidential candidate, um, also known for his music, uh, and a lawsuit trying to get him off of the ballot in Idaho. Uh, give us the latest on that lawsuit. First, why, why was it filed in the first place? So the lawsuit was filed because Kanye West filed as an independent candidate to run for president in Idaho. But under Idaho law, if you're running as an independent, you must certify that you're not affiliated with any political party. And at the time that Mr. West made that certification, he actually was a registered Republican in Wyoming, which he lists as his place of residence. And there have been legal challenges to his candidacy for president in multiple states. And in some states, he has been thrown off the ballot for exactly that reason, because of similar laws. Now, it turned out that in Idaho, um, what the court ruled, um, citing a 2008 Idaho Supreme Court decision, is that, yes, the law says the candidate has to certify they're not affiliated with any political party, but they don't have to actually not be affiliated with any political party. They can lie. And there's nothing in Idaho law that says the Idaho Secretary of State, Lawrence Denny, has to check on this or that the candidate has to document it. That's what the law says. And so there's nothing the court can do. And he remains on the ballot. So first, I wanted to ask about the Democratic Party being the one to file this lawsuit along with two unaffiliated voters. Why did the Democratic Party in Idaho care in the first place? Well, in the lawsuit, the Idaho Democratic Party contended that by having an ineligible candidate running for president on the ballot as an independent, that that could bleed votes away from their nominee, Joe Biden, who, of course, is running as the Democratic nominee against President Trump, the Republican incumbent. And in other states, um, and also here, uh, it has actually been Trump supporters and some people involved with the Trump campaign who have been actively working on this campaign to get Kanye West on the ballot. And in fact, Kanye West has not really been actively campaigning. He's made only one campaign appearance in South Carolina at which he broke down in tears. Um, he has been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. He's done basically no other campaigning. He has set up a website that basically is just some Bible quotations um, and a couple of comments on issues, none of the kind of traditional campaign website you would see from someone running for president. And he has sunk more than $6 million of his own money into this campaign, almost all of which was spent on ballot access activities. And so he's seen really on the national scene as a spoiler candidate. He was a former very strong supporter of President Trump. He says now that he's broken with him and is running as an independent on some kind of, you know, rambling issues and, and concerns. And the Democrats, I think, view it nationally as an attempt to hurt the Biden campaign. Now, then that brings up the point, which the judge, Idaho judge addressed in his decision, that in Idaho, this is a Republican state. Donald Trump is pretty much assumed to win Idaho's electoral votes. 
And the judge asked in his ruling, what do the Democrats think he's going to take votes away from Trump and give them to Biden? <laughs> I don't think that's what they thought. But I think their overall um, point in their lawsuit was that this was an, a, ineligible, it could create voter confusion and potentially bleed votes away from their candidate. Um, Kanye West has now qualified for the ballot in only 12 states. So he has no mathematical chance of becoming president of the United States, but he could play a spoiler role in some states, particularly where things are close with regard to electoral votes. Idaho, however, is not one of those states. I wanna to touch on something that you said that Kanye West has been public about his struggles with bipolar disorder as has his family. And there has been some discussion among other members of the media about whether or not we as reporters should be paying much attention to this campaign. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. That, that is an interesting point. And I've read some national magazines articles about this that have contended that, you know, in some ways, um, people for political reasons or with political agendas are taking advantage of him and of his mental health condition. Um, I really didn't get into that much in my reporting. From my perspective as a reporter, this was not so much about his campaign for president or what, you know, what he wants to do if he's president. It was much more about the question of ballot access in Idaho and what Idaho's law says and how it can be enforced by the courts. And what is the role of the Idaho Secretary of State? Basically, what the court found is that even if a candidate is clearly ineligible, the Secretary of State has absolutely no power and no authority to remove them from the ballot, and in fact is obliged by law to place them on the ballot. And so this raised another issue for me. When I was covering the court hearing, the lawyer for the Democrats, Carl Withrow, brought up another Idaho law. So the law in question about party disaffiliation um, with regard to Kanye West is the one that says a candidate must certify that they're not affiliated with the political party. We have another one, it's called the sore loser statute. And that law says that if a candidate runs in the primary for an office on the Idaho ballot and loses in the party primary, they cannot then run in the general as a member of a different party or as an independent. Well, I had just done a story on who all the candidates are who are on the Idaho presidential ballot. And we've got one of those too. <laughs> we have an independent candidate on the ballot, Rocky De La Fuente of San Diego, California, who ran as a Republican in the Idaho Republican presidential primary and got 627 votes. And now he's on the ballot as an independent in the general. So I asked Lawrence Denny about this. I said, boy, this, this sore loser statute is actually even more clear perhaps than the other one that was litigated in this Kanye West case. And he said, boy, from what the judge said, I think you made it really clear that I don't have the power to take any ineligible candidate off the ballot and I'm not doing anything. Gee, I wonder why no one sued over that one. I feel like I've heard this from Secretary of State Denny before that I don't have any power to do this. I've heard it from campaign finance issues. I've heard it from uh, people with super PACs and, and potentially violating the law there. How much is this a story about the lack of teeth in enforcement that the Secretary of State's office has? That is absolutely a facet of this. And this has been an issue uh, over the years. It's been an issue as to the authority of the Secretary of State. In that 2008 Idaho Supreme Court case that was cited in the Kanye West ruling, Ben Asursa was the Secretary of State. And 
the Supreme Court told them, no, you cannot take Rex Rammel <laughs> off the ballot as an independent um, for saying he's actually the real Republican in the race. Uh, so I think these issues have been around since before Lawrence Denny was Secretary of State, but he has been more hands-off in his tenure as Secretary of State than perhaps previous Idaho secretaries um, as far as reaching to the limits of his rather limited legal role um, and has been much more likely to step back and say, I'm not going to do anything unless the court tells me I have to. And so that's landed us in court. It's, it's been interesting to watch. Um, I do have a Sunday column coming out in Sunday's Idaho Press about this matter and, and about the law. Um, and uh, I urge everyone to pick up Sunday's Idaho Press. I wanted to ask you about another lawsuit involving a constitutional officer, and that, of course, is the ongoing legal battle between the state treasurer, Julie Ellsworth, and the Idaho legislature. What's the latest in that? Well, the state treasurer has appealed to the Idaho Supreme Court after losing. And in this case, the legislature is trying to basically boot her office out of the Capitol, where the treasurer's office has been for more than 100 years. Um, but they had the legal high ground because the legislature passed a law that said they control that floor of the Capitol, not the executive branch. And so they won in court. And the treasurer appealed to the Idaho Supreme Court and said, how dare they basically spend $10 million to create their own private offices that they'll only use three months a year um, when I'm there full time. And the back and forth led to this problem. That $10 million figure, that's not actually what they're talking about spending. Um, that as I delved into that, <laughs> it brought back memories <laughs> of a previous legislative session because there was a bill for $10.6 million and it passed the House and it was killed in the Senate. But in addition to creating new offices for House members where the treasurer's offices currently are, it did a few other things. And one of those other things was it was going to purchase back a bank building that's kitty corner across the street from the Capitol that previously had been owned by the state, but three or four years earlier had been auctioned off and at that point was owned by members of the Simplot family and had most recently served as the campaign headquarters for Governor Brad Little. So when I found out about this, that that's what was really in that bill, I was very surprised. I have since heard that there are House members who voted for the bill who were very surprised. And the bill got derailed and it went back to JFAC and they broke it into three parts so that the bank building proposals stood on its own as did the other two pieces, including the building of the offices and moving of the treasurer. Well, all three got killed. So. It wasn't 10.6 million to build fancy new offices, but it might've been 7.1 million from what I can tell. Um, basically, there are, there's a lot to dispute on both sides here. And interestingly in that fight, it's really House Speaker Scott Begge on one side, State Treasurer Julie Ellsworth, a former member of House Republican leadership on the other. They are both Republicans. In this court fight, we are paying the legal bills for both sides and they are mounting. They are getting towards half a million dollars. Other than the cost to taxpayers, what might the long-term implications of this drawn out fight be? It's, you know, it, 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 in the end, it will determine whether the, the law stands and the legislature continues to control that floor of the Capitol, whether the treasurer is or is not 
um, having all their offices located in the capital, or whether perhaps maybe they reach some kind of a settlement or accommodation or compromise where the treasurer has a small ceremonial office in the capital, kind of like the lieutenant governors and most of the working offices somewhere else. But beyond that, it's also a power struggle between the legislative branch and the executive branch, which we've seen already in a big way this year, with the pushback from the legislature against the governor and his handling of the coronavirus pandemic. And we have seen an ascendant legislative branch in Idaho being very, very proprietary about its powers, um, pressing its power to review administrative rules and so forth. And I think we're going to see that continued tension and that continued push from the legislature basically to defend its branch of government against the other branches of government. And then the third branch of government, the judiciary, gets to sit in judgment. All right. Well, Betsy Russell, we'll continue to check in with you on this. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks.